Amen. Good morning, everybody. We are in a new series today, a mini-series called God Never Said That. And so um, we're doing this all across all 17 campuses, and uh, we just want to welcome you this morning. Thank you so much for being here. If you are sitting next to family or friends, why don't you just take somebody by the hand today? I just want to pray over this message and our time together in the Word today. And Father, we love you. Thank you so much for the people of God, this place of God. And Lord, that we get to gather here today is just a privilege And so would you just open our minds and ears and hearts to just hear uh, the things that you want to tell us this morning. Uh, We're so thankful for your word. Lord, when you speak to us, it it truly is like a river in dry places. It just, it ministers to the deepest place of our souls. And we welcome that experience today in you, Father. You are welcome here. We give you all the praise. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen and amen. This morning is going to be, um, if I could, you know, categorize this type of message today, it would be one of calibration. It's like um, there are some messages that are inspirational and some that are motivational and um, some that just kind of really draw you back to the cross and others that are challenging and confronting. But today is like one of those that if you are a believer and you've kind of been on this journey, it's one of those uh, calibration-type messages where you just kind of redirect. You make sure that you're staying between the, uh, the guidelines and, and, or the guardrails, and uh, this, this is how this is going to feel this morning because it's, it's a topic that as followers of Jesus, we all need to be re- reminded of. And so in this series, we are going to be looking at some cultural impressions that Christians often attribute to God. We would often say, sure, yeah, God said that. Um, But the holdup is God never said them. Now, we've made them part of our theology, and it's not that they're far off. It's not like it's something that you would look at and go, that is so far-fetched that that has to be cultic. It's, it's just that we go, wow, I, I just kind of missed it right there. And so this may be one of those messages where you have to pull a U-turn and just kind of get back on track. Things like everything happens for a reason, okay? God never said that. We think it's encouraging. We've used it to uplift people in times of trouble, but God never said that, okay? Things like God will not give you more than you can handle, Okay, God did not say that. Now, there's, there's scripture, and I'm going to talk about this some next week, that give us um, some alluding toward that. It's very close, but it's out of context uh, for us to say God will not give us something that we cannot handle. Okay, If, if that's true, we got to go back to all these martyrs and tell them that we apologize for our theology uh, because that was something more than they, than they could handle. As parents, how many times have we looked at our kids and we've said, I never said that? Uh, they, they take something out of context. They've interpreted your words for some, to mean something completely different. And we look at them and we say, no, 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 I, I, I never said that. Okay, this is what I said. And we almost have to give them a new perspective on what we really meant. 
Sometimes we need a reminder in church that God never said some things. So this is one of those days that we get to look back and just say, hey, uh, this is something that God never said. Now, I want to start today by giving you our false theology for today, and this is it, okay? God just wants me to be happy. God just wants me to be happy, and I want to start uh, by, by making you listen to something. Uh, in the history of music, like since the worlds were framed, uh, people have enjoyed singing, they've enjoyed music, they've enjoyed instruments, they've enjoyed entertaining each other with that. And since the history of music, there are only two songs that were ever overdone. They were overplayed. And I'm going to play both of those for you this morning. The first one is this. Okay. Yeah. Anybody know this song? Okay. Y'all don't act so spiritual, okay? Y'all are acting like, oh, I can't believe you played Mambo number five. Okay. Yeah. Overplayed. I mean, how many of y'all were sick of that one? Okay. You were calling radio stations saying, move on. Okay. The second one is 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 this one. Okay, yeah, terrible. So both of these uh, were songs that, that we put overdone. We played them and played them and played them and played them. Uh, this song, Happy, it's just, you know, by the time you're done with it, you're not happy at all, okay? And so I want to tell you that does God want us to be happy, of course. It's an emotion he gave us, an experience that we get to have, and something that fortunately we get to find in him is true happiness. So does he want us to be happy? Yes. As a matter of fact, Psalm 68.3 in the NIV says, may the righteous be glad and rejoice before God. May they be happy and joyful, which are two completely words, two completely descriptions in the uh, Hebrew. And so he wants us to be happy. Yes. Does God just or only want us to be happy? No. Okay, so when we use that God just wants me to be happy as a filter for decision making, it can become unhealthy. Because we go, this obviously makes me happy. God just wants me to be happy. Therefore, this has to be God's voice condoning this thing or this person or this circumstance because God just wants me to be happy. Meaning this, that there are many things that are more important than our emotion of happiness, there are, are things that God has put in emotion, things that God desires of us that are much more important than us walking around with a smile. Ladies, sometimes as a mom, you forfeit so your kid can have favor. You give up your happiness so your kid can experience it. Men, sometimes you work a little harder, you stay a little longer, so that someone else you love can have a better life. You volunteer for overtime. You work the weekend 
Does that make you happy? No, but it's going to bring something else into your family that may be more important for that particular season. Even Jesus showed us this principle when he went to the Father in prayer and he said, God, if, basically, I'm, I'm paraphrasing, if there's any other way to make this happen, then let this cup pass from me, but not my will, but yours. Meaning this, God, Father, this doesn't seem to be something that's going to be a joyful experience, but I'm willing to take it on if there's something more important at stake. And he knew there was, and he stayed the course to the cross for us. He forfeited happiness, a way out, an exit ramp, because there was something else far more important. This is called losing to win, and it is important. Does it always make you happy? No. Losing to win is not always fun. It doesn't always bring joy, but it always gets us to the the greater circumstance. So to be clear, as followers of Jesus, the pursuit of happiness is not the end goal. Are we going to be happy? Yes. Does God have good things for us? Absolutely. But is it the end goal? Is it what everything we do should aim toward? No. So the false theology of happiness, I'm going to give you just a few thoughts today. And the first one is this. I feel happy, so it must be okay. I am feeling happy, so it, whatever the it may be, must be okay. Chasing happiness often finds us amidst some unwanted outcomes, okay? Now, every single person in this place, I want you to listen to me for just a minute, because you are the group that is more prone than any other in this room to say, that person makes me happy. This guy, this girl makes me happy. And you begin to to justify things in your life and redirect things in your life so, so that you can continue to feel or experience an emotion of happiness that someone is bringing you and you forfeit the greater picture of what God has for you in your life. And sometimes, hear me, you are selling yourself short by giving up on convictions in your life callings on your life, big direction on your life that God has already spoken to you for a moment of happiness. It's just like Esau when he was like, you know, listen, I got to have that bowl of stew. And I will give you the birthright if I can just have it. I want it. Married people. We are more prone than any other group in this room to say, that other person makes me happy. Sometimes you begin to look and the grass seems and appears to be so beautiful and green in another circumstance. And you begin to look and you give seed to thought. Thought falls into meditation and meditation can 
become action. It can become behavior. And so it's dangerous for us to go, I think another person could make me happy. Some people go so far as to say shopping makes me happy. When I'm sad, when I'm upset, I'm just going to go shopping. Some people say hobbies make me happy. So now any time that I get in a fight, I'm just going to go, you know, golfing for four hours. I'm going to get back. I'm going to be in a better mood. You're going to be in a better mood, and that has to be God. Some people, eating makes us happy. You think, man, if I, I'm so mad I could eat a cake. Okay, and I've been there. I'm so mad right now if I had a gallon of milk and a German chocolate cake. I would Happiness. There are all kinds of things, no matter where you're coming from this morning, there are all kinds of things that description for you of happiness is connected to a, a someone or a something. And, and whenever there's any tension or pressure, you run to that. And we filter it as God just wants me to have happiness in this. But Proverbs 14 and 12, he gives us a great warning. And I want you to really connect with this verse, okay? If you, I want this to be one of your takeaways today. Proverbs 14, 12, again from the NIV, he says, There is a way that, watch this word, appears to be right, but in the end it leads to death. That's a serious warning. There is, is, is a way in all of our lives that appears to be right. The other person appears to be right. That that item, that, that object, that, that thing, that circumstance that we want to dive into seems to be right, but in the end it leads to death. This author is not far from where you and I live, and, and I think what, what we all need to hear this morning is that short-term happiness can often equate to long-term regret. That we, we, we want it, we get it, there's all kinds of things, buyer's remorse, we, we end up tethering our lives to people we have no business tethering our lives to. And suddenly we have this emotional connection that we've got to pull away from if we want to get back into the will of God. And it's uncomfortable and it's awkward and, and we continue to want to come back. I'm not happy. This can't be God. So short-term happiness often equates to long-term re- regret. So it leads me right into my second point this morning is this. I am not happy, so God is not good. And this is dangerous. When we begin to say, because I'm having this emotion or that emotion, it changes the entire character of God? Think about how big of a statement this is. Because I'm not happy, God is not good. And I think the enemy, we've all lived long enough or followed Christ long enough to know that if we don't bite on this, then it turns at least into this where it it says, I'm not happy, so God is not good to me. It may be that you you see God in other people's lives and you go, that's got to be God and that's got to be God and that's got to be God. But obviously for me, he sees me differently. And then you become special in a negative way that God has pulled you out of of humanity and he singled you out and he said, I'm going to be good to everybody but you. 
I don't know if you've ever gone through a tough time like that where you feel this particular way. This comes from stinking thinking, all right? And it boils down to this, to this phrase, God is holding out on me. Like, he could do a lot of things, but he's holding out on me. I don't know if you've ever heard somebody say, I tried religion, and it didn't work. I tried the church thing. I tried the Jesus thing. It didn't turn my life around at all. Like, I went, I sang the songs, I heard the preacher, I gave some money, I, I did, I, I went like six weeks straight, and I was still the same person. I tried it. It didn't work for me. And people will, will attach this to all kinds of circumstances. It's like, it's like the building has to bring some type of, 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 of special thing, like just, just going does something. It, just the going doesn't do anything. It's the Word of God that changes our lives. It's letting the Holy Spirit get inside of us and need His work into our, our lives that we truly become changed. Listen, if God existed to solely give us our wants, he would not be God. He would be our slave. He would be a genie in a bottle. We're just making wishes and he's granting. Wishes and he's granting. Asking, receiving. Asking, receiving. Asking, receiving. I want this and this and this. And you and I, and I've taught you this many times over the, the years, the, 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 the tension for want never ends. It never ends. We always have a thirst for more, because that's what tensions want. I want more of it. If all of you won the lottery and you had $50 million, you know what you would want the next day? A hundred. You would want more. And so this thought that God is holding out is both dangerous and revealing. It reveals that our idea of a Savior could be one who is more about providing goodies than goodness. That our whole idea of, of, of a Savior is more along the lines of save my bank account, save my hobbies, save me one of those nice cars over there, save this, save that. I want, I want, I want. And it's no longer about us and really having a big picture of eternity with him and being in his presence right here in this day and time. Since all relationships are built on trust, then your relationship to God only becomes closer when you feel you haven't been slighted. You see how this becomes so da dangerous? That now everything in your life has to be good for you to be spiritual. Everything in your life has to be great for you to worship. Everything in your life has to be wonderful and pleasant and on track for you to see God as a good God. And so this is a dangerous, dangerous doctrine to go, God just wants me to be happy. And it will set in motion terrible views in your life if you don't deal with it. Number three, I know what makes me happy. I know what makes me happy. Here's what I know about God. He knows me better than I know me. He looks at my life and sees the depths of me. He sees my motive, my intentions, 
things that are very difficult to discern with the naked eye, that he's able to look into the inner sanctum of my existence and with great clarity, he sees exactly who I am, what's motivating me. And when I come into this place, he sees the level in which I'm truly connecting. He knows it. I think I know what makes me happy. I could, I could give a list of things. I've already mentioned cake and milk. I could, I, could, I could give a list of things that said these are things that make me happy. But God truly knows what makes us happy. The truth is, in a lot of our lives today, we have displaced happiness. We have displaced happiness. We chase idols of pleasure, idols of comfort. And again, there's nothing wrong with pleasure and comfort. Okay, so hear this with a mature heart today. As long as those items of comfort and pleasure are not exalted in our lives to become the source of our joy. Meaning if they were snatched out of your life today, what would be robbed of you? Who would you become? Would you change your outlooks? Would you change your worldview? Would you change the way you see the Father? Because if our identity in Christ is attached to things on this earth, we need to be reminded that he said, love not the world nor the things in the world. He was saying that don't let stuff give you identity because that's my job. When you let other things and objects and stuff that you can put money to and get back from, when you put who you are into those things, that's my job. I want to be the one to give you identity. I want to be the one to tell you that I think you're the head and not the tail. I want to be the one to encourage you. I want to be the one to inspire you. I don't want it to be an object, something you can wear on your wrist or around your neck or on on your feet. I want to be the one that brings the deepest joy to your life. Don't let stuff take the place of the Father because when it does, it becomes an idol. And a lot of us think that an idol in in our lives means that we got a special room and it has has an insert and inside that is, is a little shapen image and, you know, we're burning candles around it and having mantras and chants and that's not what idolatry means. We can be filled with idolatry. Anything that stands in the way between us and the Father becomes an idol. I got some terrible statistics to read to you today on stuff, okay? We have surrounded ourselves, and everything I've studied on on this topic so far, post-1970, we really started having a big issue with with stuff. Suddenly, our, our homes became so cluttered and inundated with these things, with, with what, what we could purchase and put our hands on and fill rooms with. And I, I'm, I'm going to blow you away with these today, okay? Here, here they are. I'm going to give you just, just, just a few things, 10 things or so. The average home in America now averages 300,000 items under roof. 300,000 items in our homes. Now, some of you who have moved recently, you know you have 300,000 items. You touched every spoon and towel. You, you put your hands on all of it. 300,000 items. Listen to this. The fastest growing commercial real estate industry 
since 1980 is off-site storage units. Not apartments, not homes, not, not, not commercial building space. Off-site storage. Now, some of y'all are convicted right now. You are, you are just, un, you're, oh God, please, you know. Because we have collected so much stuff that now it won't fit in our homes. So we go, how can I, I will pay you to put my stuff over there. I still want it. I just want you to hold it. Okay? Now listen, this is getting crazy. Of the homes in America with two-car garages, 25% of them can't park either car in them. I know that's some of y'all because I've been over. I've seen it. <laughs> Here, here's a terrible one. You ready? There are 50,000, 50,000 storage companies in America producing 2.3 billion square feet of space. Listen, to, to give you an image of that, this means that every American could be standing at the same time under the canopy of off-site storage. Every American right now could go and get in a storage building. Am I the only one that thinks that's crazy? <laughs> you know, these, if, if you watch The Walking Dead, you know those scenes where there's nobody? That's because they're all in storage units. <laughs> they all hiding in a storage unit. And apparently there's couches and TVs and fun things in there. I mean, it's not that bad of a deal. The average child in America has 240 toys to interact with, but they only engage with 12 Okay, that means you go home, you pick out the dirty dozen, and you get rid of all the others. Okay, America's children own 40% of the world's toys. Americans, including children, throw away 65 pounds of clothes every year. Half of Americans have zero savings. Zero. Okay, here's where this is going to get really ugly. Watch this. According to the Wall Street Journal, Americans spend $1.2 trillion a year on non-essential items. And we spent $100 billion last year on shoes and jewelry. Just in America. $1.2 trillion Dollars on non-essential items, and a hundred billion of that being shoes and jewelry. That's a lot of shoes, y'all. Turn to somebody beside you and say, "You got to stop shopping." Okay. Only four of y'all are doing that because you're convicted. That's okay. We'll move on. And the last one: home organization industries are growing at a rate of ten percent every year, presently being an eight billion dollar industry. What is what? Why is that happening? Because Americans are finally saying, "Help us! We are drowning in our stuff." I think the real issue here is not. I mean, it is a money issue. It it is a an an. an an, an ego issue, it's tensions out of control, but the biggest thing it is, it's a heart issue. Because somehow we, we, we have our identity all wrapped up in this stuff. 
in, 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 what I'm, in what I'm wearing and where I'm living and what I'm driving and what I can surround myself with. I am, I am fully just consumed with that stuff. And again, you, you know my heart on this. There is nothing wrong with wealth. And for those of you who, who are well, I'm thankful for you. But what I'm finding out is objects never fulfill us. I mean, is there truly ever a point where we go, hang on, whoa, I have enough money. Stop. I don't need to pay. Just stop paying me. I don't need anything. Y'all, I've vacationed enough. That's it. I've taken enough trips. I'm done. I'm tripped out. (laughs) I have enough toys. I have enough. I'm done. I have enough. Okay? No. We want the... The, the, the tension in us wants more. See, this is important for us to talk about because chasing our version of happiness has caused massive destruction in most of our family trees. People wanting happiness have ruined marriages. They've embarrassed children. People wanting to be happy has destroyed ministries. It's split churches. But the big truth here is, listen, we exist to serve God. We exist to love him. Revelation chapter 4, verse 11 says, For you created all things, and by your will they were created and have their being. One version says, And for your pleasure they were created. We were created for God to enjoy us. The interaction between us and him, us serving him, him serving us, this this incredible relationship that we get, that is why we exist, to be in community with the Father, to not treat him like a genie in a bottle who's supposed to give us the things that we ask for. That's not relationship. So if we exist to serve God, maybe we're aimed at at, at the wrong target. If being happy isn't the goal, what is the goal? Well, let's go to 1 Peter chapter 1. I'm going to read verse 14. If you're taking notes, I'm reading from the NLT today. This is what he says, 1 Peter 1, 14. So you must live as God's obedient children. Don't slip back into your old ways of living to do what? Satisfy your own desires. You didn't know any better then. He's saying, now, now, now you've grown up. Now you've been taught. Now you've been discipled. Verse 15, so now you must be holy in everything you do. Just as God who chose you is holy, for the scriptures say, you must be holy because I am holy. So what does holy mean, right? For some of us, we look at, at this word holy and we think that's, that's for extreme people. And it becomes just white noise to us. Anytime we hear the word holy or holiness, we think that's, that's old school, that's something that's over, that's something that we shouldn't aim for. Maybe we think it means to be morally perfect or super spiritual, a church-going pretentious person who is completely detached from the world and reality. It's like you look at that person, you go, oh, they're trying to be holy. They aren't like the rest of us. They're completely different. Keep in mind that the word holy means to set apart. It does not mean strange. It does not mean eccentric. It does not mean bizarre. It just means to set apart, to move to the side. It does, it does not mean to be distanced, meaning that we can fully well live a life of holiness and be completely involved in a relevant church. Holy doesn't mean weird 
It doesn't mean distanced. It means different in a way that really means unique. That people look at you and go, there's something about you. I can't put my finger on it, but I know something is going on. It's a weird thing. Friday I had to teach for the board of examiners for six hours. I was so tired of hearing my own voice. And so I was teaching, 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 teaching. And at, at the end, a few people were looking at me, and I said, you got any questions, any comments about today's teaching, anything I can help you with? One guy raised his hand. He said, I called on him. He said, you're a preacher. And I said, why so? And he said, I can just tell it. I guess at some point after five or six hours, I was like, and then uh, clinical psychology. (laughs) Anxiety and depression. It's got to go. It's got to go. Jesus' name, it's got to go. You know, I don't know what I did, but I did something. I hope it was because I was unique and wasn't getting crazy. I hope there was something different there. Philippians Chapter 2, verse 15 says, Live clean, innocent lives as children of God, shining like bright lights in a world of crooked and perverse people. Be set apart. Just, just let people see the difference in, in, in your life. Psalm 24, 3 and 4 says, Who may ascend the mountain of, of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy place? The one who has clean hands and a, and a pure heart. We ourselves have deemed things as holy. We say he, there, there's, he's a holy God. Meaning this, that God is, God is set apart in that he's different from us. He's not distanced, but he's different from us. The Holy Word, there's no collections of writings quite like it. It's unique. The Holy Spirit searches the deep things of God. You can't get a revelation of Jesus outside of the Holy Spirit. Holy ground, places or ground where the presence of God has been. So we have this holy versus happy And you may have heard it taught, God wants you to be holy, not happy. But here's the big problem, okay? If you hear anything, I want you to hear this today. Here's the problem. The people that seem holy don't look happy. And the people that seem happy don't look holy. So we're in a conundrum. We're stuck. Because people that, that, that are holy, it's, it's like that person who's on a diet and they see you eating a donut. You know that's bad for you, right? And what motivates that is they want to snatch it out of your hand and eat it. It's like, you know, if I can't submit to, you know, my body the things that I want to do with it, then you can't either. It's, it's like holiness creates this undercurrent of rage. It's like you got to pick one. you got to either be the holy roller or the happy sinner. It's like there can't be this, this balance. I think that we should be, should be the happiest people on the planet and that that happiness or joy should be our greatest tool of evangelism. Churches should be growing solely on the premise that you're happy, that you have something that nobody else has, that your life is full of something. And I'm, I'm, I'm not talking about objects and, and people and things and going places and all that's fine. But I'm talking about over all of that is this joy that won't go away, this gladness 
that you are full of that's not tethered to an object, but it's tethered to a God who's given you identity. You know who you are in Christ, and that's where you live from. So the goal of life is, watch this, this is one of, of your, your takeaways, is to seek holiness. And as we seek holiness, we, we become happy. The closer we get to the Father, the more layers he pulls back and reveals and stuff begins to fall off and things that we're tied to we disconnect from. And we may even say, you know what, this person isn't good for my life. God has something better for me. And we let stuff go and things go and, and we're not worried about what we have anymore. And, and we're just we're seeking holiness. True happiness is only the symptom of holiness. So let me wrap up. I'm out of time. To be clear, God is not against happiness. So I don't want to end making happiness and holiness enemies. I'll only succeed this morning if you leave, leave here knowing that you can have both. Okay, so let me give you two quick ap applications. I'm going to give this to you in 60 seconds. The first application is this, holiness will always allow happiness in every season of, of, of your life. This week I came across Habakkuk chapter 3. And I've kept this scripture close to me all week. Habakkuk 3.17, this is what he says. Some of you may, may need this this morning. Though the fig tree does not bud, and there are no grapes on the vine, Though the olive crop fails and the fields produce no food, though there are no sheep in the pen and no cattle in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in God my Savior. You know what he is, is declaring over, over his life? The things I have don't matter. I'm not driven by stuff that I could collect and surround myself with. My joy and the source of it comes from the Father and nothing else. And I could walk away from anything else in my life as long as I've got you, Lord. So the second thing, happiness is a result. It is not a source. Who is our source? The Father. God is our source. Happiness is not the source. Happiness is a result of us being tapped into the source. This is what makes us unique. This is what makes us different. This is what makes our life so pressed down, shaken together, and running over. Because we know who we are in Christ. And from that source, happiness comes. Amen? I want you to bow your heads with me this morning. I want to pray over you.